0: morning. Today's passage is Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 35. That's Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 35. Hear now the word of the Lord which is inspired by the Holy Spirit infallible and inerrant. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise them, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ moved by the Spirit he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying Sovereign Lord as you have promised You now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you. I know that uh, this season can be um, wonderful and celebratory for many of us, but also recognize for many of us, we have lost loved ones, and it can be a lonely time. And so with that in mind, and just to open, before we open God's Word together, I would like to pray for us as a church in light of those things. Let's pray. Father, we we recognize that many here, including myself, miss some that have left this life and are no longer here with us to celebrate this season. So many traditions uh, have fallen by the wayside as they have departed. And so God, would you encourage us at a soul level, those of us experiencing deep and real loss during this time. And Father, for all of us, I pray that we would capture the moment and make the most with our families as challenging as that can be sometimes help us to love well during this season and to give from a full heart also father because we are here to worship you i pray that your word would speak that it would run into the hearts and souls of the lives here that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would move as only you can move. I pray that you'd forgive me. I'm a sinner just like the rest. Use me by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring your word to your people. We know it is you and your spirit and your word that does the work, and so I ask on that behalf. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in our story, I had, uh, I asked Caleb to read 1 through 35, but we're actually going to focus, that gave you the context of where we're going to focus. Our focus is going to be more on a righteous and devout older man and woman. Actually, I'm going to read you that second part in a moment. But God used an older man and an older woman in our story to come in and affirm um, Mary and Joseph in, in the son and the person of the Christ Jesus. And so, I'm going to get to that in just a moment, but the Christmas story, it's, uh, it's full of miracles, and it is a story of how God entered into the world to save his creation from their sin and offer a way of salvation for all time and for all people. The gospel was not just for Israel. The gospel was for all people. That becomes clear as you read through your your Bible. But here's the thing. People have always struggled to believe and to trust in this story. Always. Always. Perhaps it's because the miracle of the virgin birth itself. I mean, let's be honest. God impregnates a woman, and she gives birth to Jesus, who is God and man. I mean, that's a hard one, is it not? And it always has been. And that's encouraging to me. If you look in the Gospel of John at 8 uh, John 8:41, you'll see that Jesus is having a typical Jesus conversation with the most religious people of that time, the Pharisees. And I say religious because there is a difference, a real and radical difference between religion and biblical Christianity. I think what most of our culture is repulsed by and pushes back on is religion, and quite frankly, I consider myself one of those people. I don't like religion, and that's kind of weird because I'm a pastor. I like biblical Christianity, and I think there's a significant difference, and so When you get to this passage, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. And I want you to see what the Pharisees' response to him is. He's basically telling the Pharisees, Your your father is Satan. And they're like, Whoa! Who are you to say that to us? Listen how they respond in 841. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. The religious people of the day did not believe in the virgin birth. They told him right then, You're born of sexual immorality. Who are you to be telling us anything? And so my point is this. Questioning the virgin birth, the miracle of that, goes all the way back to Jesus' time. It's not a new, oh, could that really be? That sounds like a miracle. Well, for me, this is how I deal with miracles. If there is a God, and if He really did descend into our world and take on flesh, wouldn't it make logical sense that miracles would follow? So that's the big question, is, is there truly a God who descended? And the Christmas story is that story. So, it's interesting because 3,000 years before what we read this morning happened, when, for the rest of the church, we're in a study of Genesis, and I've said over and over, in Genesis 3.15... God predicts and shares the first gospel message when he says that he is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. That whole statement in Genesis 3.15 is God saying, I know what's coming, and in 3,000 years from now, you're going to see what I'm saying, and it's all going to make sense. And so immediately after the fall, God promises the Redeemer. The Redeemer is Jesus, and that's the Christmas story. And when the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. These are all scriptural terms. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham, and that's exactly who Jesus was. Predictions about Him thousands of years before they came. But here's the hiccup. Here's the hiccup in Christmas. For most, perhaps, this discontinuity for Christmas is explained by Paul to the Corinthians. And if you want to, you can look with me. I think it'll be on the screens. But in 1 Corinthians 2.14, this is what Paul says the problem with Christmas is let me explain it Paul says this the man without the spirit now let me stop right there what Paul is saying is the person that does not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them He, Paul says this he says does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God it says For they are foolishness to him. The things that come from God, mostly this, the Bible is saying and Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's foolishness to those people that don't have the Spirit of God living in them. And he cannot understand them, is what the text reads, because they're spiritually discerned. So the reason so many in our culture, think about it, if everybody really believed in Jesus, our church would be full. They would be here worshiping their king. But it's far from that. It's far from that. And why is that so? Because those that do not have God's spirit living inside of them, which is what happens when you become a Christian, they think that this is foolish. And so, we must understand that as believers. It's like, it's as if you have a a deaf person and you play Bach for them and you say, would you please evaluate Bach? Well, keep in mind, they can't hear a thing. How are they going to evaluate this great composer? Or, if you took a blind person and you said, would you... Please evaluate the paintings of Monet. <laughs> a blind person's going to evaluate the paintings of Monet. It can't happen. That's what Paul is saying in Corinthians. Is you're asking a deaf person to evaluate Bach? You're asking a blind person to evaluate Monet. It's impossible because the Holy Spirit of God does not live in them and Paul is saying and because of that they think all of this is just foolish. And so Christmas does not take on the meaning that it should. C.S. Lewis one of the better minds in the history of Christianity who started out as an atheist and was converted wrote the Chronicles of Narnia he says this In science, we have been reading only the notes to a poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. And then one more quote from C.S. Lewis. He's dealing with this idea of the virgin birth and a personal God. He says, an impersonal God, well, that's well and good. Most people would accept an impersonal God a subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness, well, inside our own heads, that's even better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power that we can tap for our own benefits, well, that's even better than all of it. But here's the twist. But for God himself... To be really alive, pulling at the under end, other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed as a hunter, a king, or a husband, well, that's quite another thing. We're not so sure we want that God. That would be infringing on us. So, for many, or even perhaps most, The Christmas season does not reflect the lyrics of one of the favorite hymns that we sing. And I wished like nothing else, right now I could sing. But if you heard me sing, I'd get the best laugh I've ever gotten from you. But here's me reading the Christmas hymn. Joy to the world, the Lord has come let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing but does earth really receive her king think about it it doesn't seem like earth as a whole receives her king or rejoices that he comes the reality that I'm experiencing, and I think many, mo, many of you, is that most will not attend a worship service in America for Christmas. Many, maybe, but not most, will every heart prepare him room as the song sings? I don't think so. It seems many would prepare or prefer Christmas, actually, without Jesus, if it was possible. We'd just rather get together as family and have a good meal and pass out presents. At least in my family growing up, that was exactly what happened. There was no mention of Jesus. So why would this truth of Jesus entering the world not be the greatest news ever? There is an old man and woman in our story toward the end of the reading, starting in like two twenty five, that I think is going to help me and us answer this question. And so look with me, if you will, at Luke two, twenty five through thirty. Luke two, twenty five through thirty. It says there. To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, I'm going to stop right there and we're going to read what he said in a moment. So just before this and what Caleb read in in the context, Mary and Joseph are obeying the Jewish laws. They've gotten him circumcised. They take him to be presented at the temple. At the same time, she can be cleansed. From giving birth, which is all part of the Jewish law. There was three things that were happening there, and they were just obeying as they should. And so they get to this place, and it's here that we are introduced to Simeon. Simeon is nowhere else in the Scripture. This is the only place you see this guy. For that matter, it's the only place you see Anna, who comes after Simeon. And, but the Scriptures teach that he was a righteous and devout man And then it says, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What is righteous? What is devout? What is waiting for the consolation? What does all that mean? So here's the idea of righteous. Luke's description of him as righteous and devout is loaded with meaning. It's to say that Simeon was like Abraham and God had, and here's a 10-cent word that you may not know, imputed his righteousness into him by faith. Imputed is this idea that God took the righteousness of Christ and he placed it on Simeon so that Simeon was now holy. The same thing happens to every true believer. When you are a true follower of Christ, you get the imputed righteousness of God placed on you. All of us are sinners, but the ones that have the imputed righteousness of Christ on them, you know what happens, don't you? When they die, they go to be with the Lord. And when they live, they live the fullest, richest, most possible life in this life. The imputed righteousness of Christ. So that's what this text is saying about Simeon. Then it says he was devout. That Greek word for devout, it only only appears in Luke's writings. So it only appears in the Gospel of Luke, and it only appears in Acts. And what it is saying is, he was reverent toward God. He was God-fearing. So this man, essentially what Luke is trying to tell us, he qualifies for someone to come and give a testimony that there is something special about this child. He is a reverent and devout man full of the Spirit of God. And so that's exactly what he does. God's Spirit has revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. Now, if God had told me something like that, that's just juicy information. I'm telling you, the next Wednesday night or Sunday, I'd come in here and go, you're not going to believe what God told me. I'm not going to die until I see the real Christ. You'd be like, you done lost your mind. Well, Simeon kept it a secret. Think about it. He was an older man by this time. He had held on to this truth for this moment, this special moment. And when the moment comes, notice what Simeon does when he sees the baby. He goes over and he grabs him up in his arms. And I'm going to read to you what another commentator said. He said, recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah, this elderly man took this child in his arms and he blessed God. After a lifetime of seeking the Messiah, One can hardly imagine the joy that was Simeon's at the moment in time. Think of it. Think of this. A man who knew that God held him in the palm of his hand. In other words, God held Simeon in the palm of his hand. Now holds God in his arms in the form of this child. What what a marvelous thought. And what a personal God. God could have been any kind of being. But yet he comes in the form of an infant. He allows Mary to hold, to nurse, to nurture. And he allows Simeon to scoop him up. And it says, the all-powerful God is a tiny baby, seemingly without any power at all. And then Simeon's words of praise express the deep joy that was his at that moment. Listen to what he says. Look with me at Luke 2, 29-32. This is Simeon. He's grabbed the baby Jesus in the temple. He's holding him. The reality of what he's doing is met him squarely. And he is, going, he is going to say in Luke 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He is rejoicing that the salvation has finally come, both for Israel and for the Gentiles. And it's worth noting here that salvation was found in the person of Christ. Many, and this is what I was saying about religion earlier. I don't like religion. Religion makes my job really, really hard because people think I'm religious, and what that means is when I get into a conversation and I say I'm a pastor, you know what people do? They write me off. That's the last word I get because they're like, oh, you're like those hypocrites, and you think you're better than everybody and you're so narrow-minded and you don't get it, and if you were open-minded and you could see what I see in the world, you wouldn't be such a knuckle-dragging idiot. But see, biblical Christianity is something way different than that. And that's why religion's hard for me. There is, uh, or there was, an advertisement at Christmas a few years back that had all the major world religions in this advertisement. And it presented a quote that read, listen to this quote, our one prayer to our one Father this Christmas. So all the major religions, here's our one prayer to our one Father this Christmas. Peace, give us peace. Now that sounds good. But there's an implication in that statement That we're all worshiping the same God our one prayer to our one father no the other religions do not come to God through Christ if we could get to God without Christ trust me the father would not have killed his only son on a cross that is why Christianity it is exclusive. And that's hard because we live in a generation where the highest value is tolerance. But listen to the words of Jesus himself in John 14:6. I am the way. This is Jesus speaking, not me. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's no wonder they killed him. It's no wonder he hung on a cross and died. Jesus said, There is no other way. And that is offensive to mankind. It is extremely offensive. And I would argue, It is biblical Christianity and it is why Christmas is not celebrated like it should be. Simeon's song of praise is known in the Latin as the Nunc Dementus and I'm a Latin professor so you know I got that just right. It means now Lord and really what he's saying is now Lord you can take me. I have seen your salvation. God was releasing his bondservant to depart in peace and die according to his word of promise that he had been given through the Holy Spirit. His hope was fulfilled. His joy was complete. His heart was at peace. With his own eyes, he had seen God's salvation personified in the infant Jesus. He understood at this point Salvation for Israel involved, and this is key, this is why they crucified him. Simeon understood salvation for Israel was much more than national deliverance. It was deliverance from sin. And so the incarnation, Jesus Christmas, comes to earth. He came not to save his people from His enemies, are their enemies, Rome, the oppression that they were experiencing, the Jewish people of the Roman Empire, and they thought when our king comes, when our Jewish Messiah comes, he's going to come, and he's going to clear house, and we're going to reign, and we're going to be the top dog. But that is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And do you see the rub? You see, what we want is a rabbit foot God that would come and give us all the things that we want and we really don't want to hear that we have a sin problem. And when Jesus told him, I'm not going to rescue you from Rome. I've come for another kingdom. I'm going to rescue you from your sin. Well, that didn't play well. And it doesn't play well today. frankly, Matter of fact, there are many out there that would say, Sin, (laughs) you still believe in that? That's just silly. You see, if Jesus would, think about it for just a moment with me, just hypothetically go there. If Jesus would have come and he would have delivered Israel from Rome and he would have set them up to be the top dog, do you know how popular he would have been? Man, he'd have been on the cover of Time. He'd probably made Sports Illustrated. I mean, he'd have been the the guy. And that was what they were thinking. But that isn't what happened. He came to deliver from sin, and they didn't even want to believe that they had sin. And so they crucify him. Now, notice what Simeon's words have on Joseph and Mary. Mary. In, in Luke 2.33, it says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then, I want to read what Anna, you know, the, the section in 2.36 and thirty eight, because God used both Simeon, this older man, sorry, and this older woman to help the people there and Mary and Joseph see what they had in Christ look at what happens in Luke 2 36 through 38 and there was a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher she was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years so basically she married he lived for seven years and then he died and she was a virgin, during, after, for seven, she was a virgin, seven years with a husband, and he died. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting, prayer, and night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So God raises up not just one person, but two to come into the temple and to speak so that Mary and Joseph get this affirmation that, yes, we're not crazy, you really did get pregnant outside of wedlock with some supernatural way. I mean, you've got to imagine, this has never happened in the history of mankind. This has got to be hard to get your head around. And so God uses these two people to help, but then and this is key the story takes a very hard turn it's one of the first times that Mary and Joseph are going to realize that all is not going to go well with their little boy look at what Simeon tells Mary in 34 and 35 and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother here it comes Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This child is appointed for the fall of and the rising of many. Simeon is revealing to Mary there's going to be a lot of people that are going to oppose your son. And he says, it's going to cause you untold grief. It's going to pierce your soul like a sword. Could you imagine mothers that give birth to a son and then find out even in his infancy that he's going to be opposed his whole life and eventually crucified, what would that do to you? Now, the sun will cause the falling and rising of many. What does he mean? It means that when Jesus went out and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, those that believed and followed would rise And they would spend eternity with God in a place that we call, and the Bible calls, heaven. And when he went out and made that message, and those that did not believe, they will fall. And what the Bible is saying there, many will rise, many will fall, and that is eternal damnation in the place that the Bible calls hell. And because of that, the thoughts... Of many will be exposed. When he goes out and preaches and when the disciples go out and preach, there will be some that will come, some that will not, some will rise, some will fall, and all of the thoughts will be exposed. Who is this man? The Christ. So many people are going to reject him The Lord is getting Mary ready for the cross 33 years earlier. She knows something's coming that's not going to be easy. So my question is this, in closing. Why why do they oppose Him? Why do we not rejoice? And I think the first one is what Israel experienced. He didn't come to set them free from their oppressors, the Roman government. We have the same idea about God. Come and give me the best life now. Give me, you know, take away my cancer, take away all the hard things, give me exactly what I want right now, and I do not believe that that's Jesus' primary goal for your life or mine. I think his primary goal is that we would know him Because who he is and nearness to him is our greatest good. It's like being near somebody who is the best possible human being you could ever know. My father was far from the best possible human being I could ever know. But my father was a good father. And I reveled to be in his presence. I loved to do things with him. And to go places with him and to listen to his stories and to help him do work. How much more to be near your God and his goodness and his beauty? And so, that is what God ultimately is trying to give us. But to give us that, he must expose, he must expose our sin nature because he's holy. We can't be near him because of our sin. Not just you, me. He's holy. And so his work in our life is to reveal our sinfulness and and to make us holy. Be holy as I am holy. And so God works in these three areas. And A.W. Pink, in the book, The Sovereignty of God, if you've never read A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. I challenge you to read it. And I bet if you read it, you'll never think about God the same way. It will expand your view of God in such a massive way that it will cause you to worship and fall on your knees. It is that powerful of a book. But he says this. He says that people miss God in these three primary areas. He says we miss God in our understanding of happiness and misery. He says, we miss God in our understanding of wisdom and foolishness. And we miss God in our understanding of freedom and bondage. This is how he says it. He was, uh, you know, he lived hundreds of years ago, and he says it a little different because he's British. So let me read you how he said it. See if you can follow. On the first one, misery and happiness, he said, the world counts none miserable but the afflicted and none happy but the prosperous so the only people we see as happy are people that are rich the only people that we see as unhappy are the people that are afflicted but he says we see it that way because we judge by the present ease of the flesh that if it's easy now then i'm happy if it's hard now i must be miserable but the truth is, and the secret of the kingdom of God is some of those hard things are the things that are going to make you so much happier and joyful. And you, in the end, would not trade them for all the things in the world. And so he, then he says, on wisdom and foolishness, he says, again, the world is pleased with a false show of wisdom. All I got to do is turn on my television to any sports or any news channel and I get a false show of wisdom. Uh, I don't care which one it is. Um, The world is pleased with a false show of wisdom. That's foolishness to God. Neglecting that which makes wise unto salvation. Neglecting the things that make us wise unto salvation. How much time do we spend watching television, playing on social media, all these other things, this is what's going to make you wise to salvation. The truth is, most think this is foolish and that's good. I think that's foolish and this is good. But even in my flesh, I still struggle. I still want to just veg out and watch the foolishness stuff more than I want to understand the truth. And then the fourth thing, or the third thing he says is bondage and freedom." He says, "As to freedom, men would be at their own disposal and live as they please. They suppose the only true freedom is to be at the command and under the control of none other than themselves and live according to their heart's desire. But this is enslavement and bondage of the worst kind. True freedom is not the power to live as we please, but to live as we should. As we grow in likeness, we experience the best of who God created us to be. We experience the most supreme joys, the most delightful beauties, the most liberating freedom, the deepest of loves, the highest of hopes and eternal glory to be revealed. I want to illustrate it this way. Every now and again, you'll pick up a newspaper article and it'll tell this story about someone who uh, buys a pet, maybe even a pet anaconda, which is a massive snake. And... uh, and they bring it into their home and there's at least one news story of this that I have read and it slithers into the room and it literally chokes them out and eats them alive. The reason I tell that story is in the beginning they went and bought this little pet that they thought would bring them joy. But in in the end, it slithers into the room, (laughs) chokes them out, and eats them alive. That is sin. We think we can just bring it home and live with it, and it'll bring us joy. Whatever it is, too much drinking, whatever, whatever the sin is, there's a million of them out there, just pick one. You think you can enjoy it, and it won't destroy you but somewhere along the way it slithers in and it chokes you and it eats you alive. And you're wondering, why did I ever allow that into my life? That is sin. This is why Jesus came, to deliver us from sin. However, he's not celebrated at this time of the year like the Messiah that he is, Listen to one more song. Listen to these lyrics. It's one of my favorites, actually. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and arrow and error uh, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. O oh, night divine. O oh, night when Christ was born. Do you see him? Does your soul feel his worth? Is there a thrill of hope in your life? Are you willing to fall on your knees and worship Him as Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Simeon and for Anna, for the story of Christmas the reality of hope, eternal hope. And we give you thanks. May you be worshipped and honored in our families, in our homes, in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.